Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined today on this recording, episode 69, uh, by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Brian, it is just you and me again. We have done this before. I, I look. I had to look this up because I thought it. I thought it was last year um, when we had three co-hosts planned, and one of them, for completely understandable reasons, could not make the recording. It has happened again, um, and this was episode fifty-seven way back wow. in May of twenty twenty-two. Doesn't feel like that long ago. Um, and we no. talked about, I think, Patty Barra and, and Patrick Anderson's uh, article um, uh, that that revisited the, the, the pandemic, mm. um, the 1990s, all of that. But now we are, it is you and me again. So, um, how have you been, Brian? What's, what's new in your world? Well, it's a new year. I think this is the new, the first episode of the 2024 calendar year. And, uh, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey, and we have been experiencing the full span of seasons. Uh, today it's a bright and sunny and brisk and cold day, but, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, staggering forward as we all are, it seems. <laughs> it does seem that way. It does seem that way. Um, yeah, I, I will get this to this in my draft, but um, part of the staggering forward going on now is having a, a member of our family involved in a theater production at WashU and having uh, COVID just just tear through the cast and 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 sideline a lot of people along the way. So. Mm. Um, What's what's new is old again, or what's old is new again? I don't yep. know. It, it's, yeah. We're still in the pand- we're still in the pandemic era, is the thing. Yep, yep, yep. But um, yeah, but what better what better way to spend uh, late pandemic time than on Zoom with a, a dear friend and colleague, um, or listening to a recording of uh, your favorite podcast hosts talking? And and today <laughs> on the podcast, we have some topics. I'm super excited to get into um, with you, Brian. We read Eric Mayer Garcia's recent article in Theater Survey, Theorizing Performance Archives Through the Critics' Labor, which provides his reflections on time he spent uh, engaging with a performing arts archive in Havana, Cuba. We read Alexis Solosky's novel, Here in the Dark. This is a new and, and on my, uh, in my opinion, very compelling novel uh, featuring a theater critic as narrator um, whose job spills into her broader life in some surprising ways. And finally, we went to see Mean Girls, the 2024 edition, the musical movie edition. Um, and we will talk about the uh, adapted life of this story, which includes a musical on Broadway, a film, mul- multiple films, a book, etc. Um, so this property, uh, this story beloved by millennials and Gen Xers alike uh, will be the topic of our third um, uh, segment. Before getting into those topics, let me first say, as I always do, that I'm recording um, – uh, actually, I, I need to modify this this time. I usually – I almost always am recording in my office at Wash U, but uh, today I'm recording in my home, which is just a mile away and therefore also situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Miseria tribe, the Miami people, 
and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands, this land, by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. And so I am uh, uh, acknowledging this history. And I'd also like to thank the Booter Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. And as always, I encourage listeners to learn more about the territory where they live and um, take a moment and read the land acknowledgement page on our website, ontypod.com, to learn more. So um, first off, we read Eric Mayer Garcia's um, really interesting new article in Theater Survey. Uh, This is Theater Survey, Volume 64, so it's from last year. and it's really it's really terrific. There's a lot in here. I'll just say as a way of serving it up that um, Mayor Garcia had, a, I believe, a, a grant from Astor to visit a particular archive. Um, he spent, I, if I'm remembering the details, he spent about two weeks um, at the photographic archives of the Tablas Alarcos Press in Havana, Cuba. Um, and... There's so much going on in this article. Um, In a way, I kind of wish or hope that it would be the basis of a book because you can look at different concerns that Mayor Garcia brings up. Um, You know, being a historian myself, I I am, you know, I think I tend to engage with an archive and think, okay, what are the artifacts in here? What's the information that you need to dig into to find? Um, And we get that. There's a a big section in the middle of the article um, where where Mayor Garcia reads several photographs in a really rich way um, from the kind of avant-garde um, theatrical tradition in Cuba. Um, and that stuff is fascinating. But there's a lot uh, that's going on beyond this. And in a way, this is engaging with what theater critics do. In a way, it's engaging with what archivists and archives do. Um, so uh, we want to pick some of this apart and, and, and talk about what we found. So Brian, I'm, I'm curious to know, um, you know, we haven't talked about this at all yet. We've both read it. What was the sort of angle of intervention or scholarly interest that you sort of uh, grabbed onto first or, the, or that really spoke to you? Well, I was thrilled to read it in so many different ways because for so many different reasons, because I felt like what it really did a nice job of was thinking about that question that has sort of been a sort of defining question of performance studies of archive and repertoire. Uh, that question, that poli- that false polarity, that false binary has been sort of a, a discursive referent point for what, two, three decades at this point in the field, this mm-hmm. question of what mm-hmm. is different, what is the difference between the um, material archive that might be found in papers, objects, photographs, everything like this that can be in the, the print biases of the of the archive of the library project what what about performance traces in those spaces as compared to say the embodied archive of memory of repertoire of these other kinds of modes that like what performance makers might do and how so much of performance history is in, is archived in what some people call the mouth to mouth approach or the hand to hand approach of transmitting theatrical knowledge of guiding somebody through a tradition by training them in that tradition whether that be verbally or physically And so what I thought that this project really did, because one of the key uh, features of the project is uh, Eric Garcia, Mayor Garcia, talks to um, an actor who happens to also be an advocate, who happens to also be a critic, who also happens to be a scholar, you know, and he talks about the kind of archival um, knowing that this multi 
disciplinary body carries and how that amplifies and interacts with and reactivates Eric's own sense as an embodied performer within the archive himself. So that's, I think, the the piece that I found so compelling is Eric really presses, uh, Mary Garcia really presses us to consider not only the construction of archives as embodied practices, but also working within them as an embodied practice. And one of the parts I found most compelling, and it does align with some of my own work on this same general topic, which is the ways in which we as scholars become archivists. And that uh, there's a sort of a great dramatic turn in the middle of the article when, when Eric goes back to try to confirm uh, when Eric researcher character goes back to the archives to look at a photograph to to confirm a photograph that he took a crappy digital picture of and realizes that it's not findable and then that leads to a set of discoveries where a whole bunch of the f- reference photographs that Mayor Garcia took in a previous archival visit are now lo- no longer locatable as they should be in the archive that he was working in. And so so it does become this question of what is the incumbent, what is what responsibilities are incumbent on on scholars or critics as they end up assembling details and data around performance that may be otherwise lost through um, accident, negligence, malfeasance, whatever. And so there's a way in which there's kind of, it's a constant oscillating process of historiographic theorizing of what is the particularities of a performance archive. And I don't think I've encountered an essay that uh, was um, as historically informative, as historiographically engaged, and then also as sort of richly theoretical in some of the defining questions of what performance studies has been in the last four decades. And so I just thought it worked on so many interesting different levels. And plus, it's a great read because it's got this great character and these great dramatic turns. I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, I think, well, and by dramatic character, I think you, you're probably referring to Roberto Garcia yes. Suarez, right? This is the actor um, actor and critic who uh, Mayor Garcia ends up having a you know collaborative relationship with and enlisting to help him sort through this mass of ephemera and photographs and information that is very hard to access or, 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 or understand if you haven't been there. So there's there's some really interesting things going on. And like I said, there's several, in a way, I feel like there's several different arguments in it or observations. Yeah. Yeah. One is exactly, you know, one of the ones that you mentioned first, Brian, which is the, you know, the distinction that we now tend to learn um, between archive and repertoire um, uh, after Diana Taylor, or also, you know, sometimes Paul Connerton's notion of inscribing versus incorporating practices, mm-hmm. right? That there's the physical, durational, um, you know, objects in the archive and their history. And then there's another form of knowledge, which is, you know, body-to-body transmission and performance-based and incorporating. Um, Mayor Garcia points out how this kind of, it's kind of doesn't hold up in the practical encounter with the contemporary temporary archive because on his account, Mayor Garcia's archives are living things. So if you have spent time with any kind of archive, uh, probably especially performing arts archives because the this is where my own professional prejudices might intervene. I've only really done archival research on theater. Um, I've ended up, you know, looking at bureaucratic archives of theater architecture reform, etc., um, but I imagine when you're doing an archival search into a novelist, a poet, a you know a, a, a figure from any 
um, era, you're going to find a lot of correspondence and some work papers, but you're likely to find a lot of other weird stuff in a theater archive. And this archive that he went to was um, a st- if, if I understand, it was a press that was a, uh, attached to a state agency um, dedicated to the performing arts. So you get a lot of production photographs, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, Mayor Garcia's point, one of his points is these archives are always changing and not just in the kind of metaphysical existential sense in which um, and he cites Barbara Kirshenblatt saying that, you know, an object is just a slow event, not just in that kind of theoretical way, but in the sense that the holdings of archives are always in process. They're always being categorized, um, cross-referenced, sorted. And so if you have had archival research experience, you are probably familiar with the idea that you know something is in this building and you have gotten to it and then you find out it's been relocated or it's yeah. under it's under process it's it's being digitized so you can't access it um so that i thought was really helpful um there's another argument uh, that has to do with uh, what he calls crude digitization which is the contemporary practice of using your cell phone and your cell phone camera to snap photos um sometimes quickly sometimes sporadically sometimes you know systematically so that the prized hours that you have in the archival room looking at whatever you're looking at are not your only access to this thing. Yeah. So it's very common for historians to get out the the cell phone camera or even a, you know a little digital camera set them up on a stand and just be, you know, snapping photos of hundreds, thousands of documents. Mayor Garcia's point is that this changes the archive, that it creates this sort of uh, um, what would the word be? Non-systematic, almost accidental exterior archive of these images, which refer in a uh, you know solid, tangible way back to something in this building. But they can be shared, they can be cited. Yeah. Um, uh, but then you also get these bizarre moments where the thing you photographed earlier is not where it should have been. Um, so that I thought was really interesting. I, I yeah. I, I, yeah, go ahead, Brian. Well, I mean, because he calls that crude dig- digitization, right? That's what he calls yeah. it. And yeah. as I was talking about it, I was like, it's sort of, a, we, we all have our own bootleg archives, right? We build our own mm-hmm. bootleg. And I've written about this a little bit in, in a brief little piece I wrote a, a number of years ago called um, Evanescence about the recent mm-hmm. career past. And, and I talk about how my printouts from an old website now are some of the only traces of the fact of that website. You know, so this is this kind of thing where I just went and I, as I narrate in that piece, I talk about how when this website was active, I didn't have home Internet. So I would go to the grad, the master, the, the pod, the grad computer pod at my master's program at the University of New Mexico. And I would just I wasn't screenshotting. I was just printing out the pages because that's because that, and so I had this pile of 50 or so printouts that I carried with me through several state moves and everything like this and it was only when I really returned back to this topic that I realized that the website uh, there was only two or three pages of it that were screenshot on the internet wayback machine and otherwise the web domain had been reappropriated and all these things so I realized like oh all of this language all of these images are gone now and I do think that what he's talking about with crude digitization, and this is, I think, where his work, because, I mean, we're mentioning some of the key names in performance studies and performance theory. He also invokes Philip Auslander's question of what does the the sort of the 
the notion of a fixed archive, how does that relate to a digital or a mediatized moment? And it, he opens up, opens up some really interesting questions about mediatization and the question of what, um, what is the, what are, what are our assumptions about what different kinds of archives give us in ways of by access to the past? You know, like what kinds, what are our uninterrogated or habituated assumptions about what certain objects or um, artifacts, how they give us access to the past? And I think that this is, I think, a particularly fraught uh, sort of question right now is we're at this end of the era where, like, we're now into this space where the habits of the 20th century in terms of print culture and the way that that the habits of the 20th century sort of consolidated mm -hmm. the contemporary archival apparatuses that most of us are familiar with. Um, but they were very print driven and very much author driven or very much organization driven. And as we're in the 21st century with increasingly more digitally native doc documents, more documents that are that have never been material objects, but have always been in digital space, there's there, it's opening up some really key questions, I think, for us, particularly as performance scholars about um how do we go about participating in the construction of archives? And and additionally, because he's talking about a 20th century figure, uh, Gassio has been enormously important for the 20th century, embodying certain roles, one of which was critic. And that's sort of a, one of the ways that G Mayor Garcia points to is that the scholar and the print journalist critic is an important documenter and also accumulator of archive. And as we see that that role has sort of uh, dissipated in clarity in the 21st century in particular, um, like what what happens to performance documentation if critics aren't there to see everything and write about it and document it? Uh, what, are, what, is, what are future scholars going to be doing in terms of reconstructing the performances of our lived experience, of our lived age? And so, so we think that it's just, um, there's so much to think about, so much to talk about. I don't know if this is part of Mayor Garcia's uh, horizon of work, but I, I'm thrilled that this, that this piece exists, especially because one thing we haven't talked about is uh, he's dealing with this, not making a big show of the fact that he's reading this all in Spanish and doing all these all of his own original translations, opening up another some of the questions that come up about the Anglophilic bias of archive or German, depending on which way we go. You know, in Europe, you've worked a lot in French archives, but there's certain ways where these dominant European languages of research, English, French, and, and German, have overdetermined archival habits of taxonomies and character characterizations and. So when we get, and I know that working in an unstructured archive, an unofficial, unpro, like um, an official archive that hasn't been processed by a scholarly uh, repository, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there's all kinds of aspects of translation to make things legible mm -hmm. as archive or evidence. And so I just think this this piece is quite extraordinary in its breadth yeah. and its depth and its and its. Um, and finally, like just as I said it before, it's a it's a hoot to read. It you know, is, there's yeah. just like it's like it's like what's so fun when you get together with other archive rats and you talk mm -hmm. about archival adventures and yeah, how and when you find another archive rat, you can just go and go and go. And what he's done is he's found a way to t do an archive rat story in the con but by anchoring with what is interesting about what he's encountering. I agree. I, I I totally agree. It reminded me of something I wrote a while back. Um, the, uh, the my short article on performance non-events because that also yeah. had part of that was also 
from the weird world of doing archival research where I think, in fact, I know I found something that was miscategorized in an archive. And, you know, I think at that moment when I started writing, I was like, wow, look what I'm doing. This is real. Like now I can I can write to this archive and say, Lou, you have this felt like a supremely like nerdy, but professorially appropriate thing to do is to say, you know, this this document that is filed here really should be filed over here. Part of why this article makes clear, though, is that that is kind of the norm. I feel like that that's you know, professional archivists take their work extremely seriously and do not want there to be any errors. They don't want things to get mislabeled. I don't mean to say it's the norm, but the complications and difficulty of categorizing and indexing materials that like, you know, boxes of stuff you get from a set designer, from an actor's career, from the collections of critics, you're going to find things that you do not know where to put. Um, the, the, you know, I want to flag a few things in here. One is is an idea that you mentioned, Brian, which is the role of the critic, because I think another core argument in here has to do, and really it's the, I think it's signaled by the title, right? Which is that theater criticism is a source of the knowledge itself. Yeah. It is not just a sort of, it's not parasitical. It doesn't sort of stand between the scholar and the performance um, that they may be writing about, but it's a very helpful source of information, knowledge, perspective. And I th- I think that I'm correct in understanding Mayor Garcia to say that one of his arguments is that you should not put too high of a premium on the idea of having seen a show itself in person when you can avail yourself of, uh, you know, photographs, primary archival materials and the critical appraisals of the time that gives you a lot to go on. So he makes a sort of strident, it's not a strident, he makes a strong claim um, that, you know, we, I'm going to, I want to bring it up so I can uh, quote him directly. Um, Being there should not have a much more privileged position in the making of knowledge about a performance. Right. Um, So I think that's interesting. And he, and he, you know, brings in, I think, part of what was interesting to me about this is that I can, I think the argument applies to the idea of what generally happens in relationship to the archive. You get, if you can get some good criticism, you know, um, people writing about what they saw at the time and look at the primary documents, then you can make historical claims that are valid. Um, But he also lucked into having this man who was there, who was living and knew the information that he was writing about who could say, oh, yes, that actor is this this person, that actor is this person. I saw that show. Oh, here's a story about that show that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, so the the, per, the you know, the existence of the still living person who's experienced this is also absolutely invaluable. Um yeah, so I think it, it's it, it, as you said, if it's great for people who have had those experiences with the archive, when you're a graduate student or a scholar in training, and you have those first moments where you think, "Okay, I'm going to go to this archive. They're going to have all the stuff I need. It's going to go beautifully," and then you realize yeah. how weird, how complicated our uh, archives are. He he brings up the principle of provenance, right? Yeah. That archivists will not take information and artifacts from a bunch of different sources and then reassign them to a grid of like year or collaborator or this type of show or this type of show. They keep the, the um, archival material in the 
collection that it came to them in, though sorted and indexed. So that, those are the types of things you learn in the course of researching. The final thing I wanted to say about this, um, Brian, and, and you may have other thoughts as well, is that I think this would be an ideal article to assign in a methods course for historians or to yeah. give to a graduate student who's about to go to some archive and do some precious, you know, spend some of their precious research time doing that. Read this article because you're going to, you're going to save yourself some uh, disillusionment <laughs> with how complicated it is to just sit and find things to read and, and write about. So um, I recommend it strongly in that particular way and overall. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think this would be a, in a graduate course or an upper, upper undergraduate level course with somebody undertaking archival research for the first time, and especially in a performance studies or a performance oriented project, because I think my disciplinary and, and experiential bias is that archivists can be, um, unless you're working in a performance oriented archive, there can be kind of sort of a strange obtuseness about about um, how things should be sorted or organized. And so often you will have to dance around and find things that are that are unconventional. And one of my jokes, um, when, when it's a joke that actually describes my practice, when I go to a collection and I'm starting to learn how to read a collection, which is a key part of what he's talking about, is you have to learn how to read the collection, which takes a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. I always pull out the box that I know has things I think I wanna see Mm -hmm. And I also look to see what are the boxes at the back end of the of the finding aid, which are typically miscellany. Yes. And I, I figure between the thing I know about and what ends up in miscellany, that gives me my bearings in terms of how this collection is conceptualized. Because uh, usually what ends up in miscellany are things that are oversized, un, unusually formatted objects, but then also things that the archivist instinct says, this is important. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and so yeah, like the yeah. archivists have yeah. like, they, they clearly cared about this. So this seems to be a big deal. I don't know what it is. So it goes into miscellany. And that's yeah. often been the space where I find my opening to the collection. When I talk to my colleagues in literary or historical studies, and I say that to them, they look at me like it's very uh, but I said, this is one of the features is sometimes we're looking yeah. at things that don't uh, fit into conventional taxonomies of what certain folks have called the hierarchy of evidence. And so which is clear authorship, clear date, clear sequence, aligning with an individual biography. And indeed, one of the things that we've encountered, I do a lot of work with an organization called the Fornes Institute, which is a, which is an ad hoc uh, um, co co cohort of uh, scholars, researchers, advocates and artists and others dedicated to amplifying the, the life and legacy of um, Maria Irene Fornes. And one of the things we've struggled with is because Fornes uh, doesn't have a collection. There's no, there's papers of hers that exist, but there's no Fornes collection. And uh, one of the things we found is there's lots of scattered evidence that exists in other people's mementos or whatever, but no uh, repository is interested in collecting what I have taken to be called Fornesiana. You know, this sort of this the random programs, these things, like the documentation of her impact and trace uh, in ways that are outside of the conventional purview of how things are organized. It's not even a yeah. publication. So, so I think it's... Um, it opens up particular questions about how does performance move in our world and how do performance mm -hmm. traces survive the passage of time. And so it's, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that that's also, 
um, the way I'll shift it a little bit, because we're going to go talk to talk about the novel next, right? Um, so I think the way I'm going to shift it is I think what I loved about Eric Mayer Garcia's argument is he reads the archival experience as a performance. He reads it with the knowledge of performance making uh, and like uh, dramaturgy and direction and action and feeling and materiality, all these things. He brings this knowledge of the performance making process to making sense of this archive. And I think that that's one of the things that is so fascinating about uh, Alexis Solosky's um, recently published novel, uh, Here in the Dark, which is published from Flatiron Books. It was published in very late 2023 and is... I believe, and um, is uh, a uh, novel, a straight up like noirish thriller, uh, sort of a twisty, turny, dark, dark sort of all kinds of mysteries right around the next corner, um, led by your classic dark detective, dark and like noir detective of somebody who's got Mm -hmm. as many problems in their life as the problems they're supposedly um, investigating. And yet in this case, the protagonist is is a uh, theater critic, uh, yep. a second, a sec- like somebody who doesn't have the top job at their publication, who's just a jobbing theater critic, dancing around New York City, seeing shows six or so nights a week, and writing quickly about them. And uh, But there's a way in which that way of seeing and way of knowing, of reading things dramaturgically, but also this drama critic herself had been, uh, like so many folks in, the, in theater scholarship and theater criticism and writing about theater, had begun on stage yes. had begun as an actor. So there's this sort of dual register of knowledge of uh, and of experiential knowledge about performance that infuses how this critic sees her work, but also how she sees the world. Yeah, well, by by taking the transition, Brian, you 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 uh, I, I had a great one ready to pin your Fornes comment uh, because Fornes, uh, Maria Irene Fornes is one of the many um, theater artists, not, you know, not necessarily on the radar or at the top of mind of, of a typical novelist um, that appears in this book. Um, but I, I appreciate you doing it as I, as I always do. Um, yeah, this book was, is fantastic. And I think what we should do is, uh, you know, if we get into late plot developments and any of the spoilers, we will pause and give the reader warning. And the discussion up to that point is safe for people who want to hear what we think about this novel. Um, but maybe we'll reveal some spoilers, but we'll be careful to warn readers ahead of time. Um, because I think everybody listening to this podcast should read this book. It's so much fun. I, I don't, I don't read a ton of fiction, so people should not take my endorsement as necessarily, um, you know, uh, the most uh, critically qualified. But I, I tour through this, and not just because we had to have it read before we recorded. Um, it's delightful. The, the main character, as you say, Vivian Perry, is a theater critic who lives in the East Village, um, who has a kind of seedy lifestyle and and is a somewhat damaged figure and maybe not particularly likable from the outside. Um, and so the life of the contemporary theater critic, which the author Alexis Solusky is, right? She is a theater critic, uh, cultural 
cultural reporter and theater critic for the New York Times. She has um, uh, reviewed, she was a theater critic for the Village Voice, um, just like our uh, co-host Miriam Felton Dansky was. Um, uh, but Soleski also um, has a PhD in English and comp lit. And so uh, I, I, maybe it's uh, unfair to say that that training gives her the kind of erudition and depth to, you know, put some references to, I don't know, Diderot's theory of acting, uh, Brechtian alienation, Fornes, um, in a, in a novel where it would pass without such deep cuts. Um, but I think part of the pleasure of this, besides it just being very well constructed, a real page turner and kind of a, you know, peek behind the scenes of not the theater industry per se, though you get a little bit of that, um, but of theater criticism. Uh, part of what was great about it was that there is this kind of, there is a little bit of an academic backstory. One of the characters you meet um, is a graduate student. Um, and so there, there's a scene in a coffee shop where the main character is interviewed by this kind of uh, odd and, and uh, overly solicitous, but maybe with ulterior motives, um, grad student who wants to, you know, writing a thesis about theater critics. Usually when graduate students or professors appear in films or novels and the person writing doesn't know that world, it seems very odd. But this seemed very plausible to me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of the one of the great pleasures of it, and I think it's I think it's a good book for anybody. But if you're someone who would be listening to this podcast, then you're going to get extra pleasure out of it. The references and the the sense of what theater criticism is. Well, and also I think that it's 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 one of the rare things where we see. Um, a theater critic as being the hero and protagonist of a novel, even though an anti-hero, a dark hero, she's sort of, um, she's sort of this critic as a critic known for being particularly uh, vicious and yes. in their turn of phrase when writing about performance. But it's also <laughs> one of the things that I sort of, I think one of the dark jokes of the, of the whole thing is the mystery that propels the entire novel is yes. it turns out, and this is not a spoiler, it happens really early on, is... Uh, Vivian Perry, uh, against her better instincts, chooses to meet with this graduate student for mildly careerist notions of her own, because she yes. doesn't really know much about this graduate student. She's thinking like, oh, it might help me sort of be legible for the promotion, da 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 And she doesn't really like this. So there's something about this graduate student that sort of puts as off-putting to her. They have a conversation, which is a little bit awkward, and that she doesn't, she knows there's something she doesn't understand. Going on, but then what happens is he disappears after he meets mm -hmm. with her, and the next thing she knows is she is suddenly involved as an as a sort of like a she's implicated in the fact that she is the last person known to have been speaking with him prior to his disappearance, mm -hmm. and that piques her interest morbidly and selfishly in different ways that propels yeah. this very flawed character into a series of. Um, there's a drama going on separate from her grind of yeah. like, and this is what, one of the things that's really interesting about the novel for somebody who I, I too don't read a lot of fiction, but I do watch a lot of um, procedural television. I watch like my comfort zone is like uh, a sort of a, a tortured woman detective in the British Highlands for solving gruesome murders, you know? And so, so there's this kind of way where this sort of that, the, the flawed, um, dissipated uh sort of often sort of caring 
unresolved trauma and uh, undiagnosed substance abuse issues um, uh, as sort of a feature of their doing their trying to get through their daily job as they're solving solving a mystery is very much at the anchor of what this character is doing. And so there's a way in which I I love the way that that Solosky chose to work very much within a genre and really propelled by this propulsive sense of self-servingness that often detectives often get like detective stories often have the detective being very self-serving, even as they're in the high-minded pursuit of the murderer or the missing person in this case. And then, um, but then what she does is her day, this character's daily life is constantly encountering the fact of theater. And as, and again, it's not a spoiler that this is a character who's really estranged um, from her own experience of daily life, but feels most alive when at the theater. And there's a kind of interesting way that that introduces a question of which is oscillating throughout this entire story of where is um, the authentic? Where is the real? What is real feeling? What is the real self? What what is the and what is the ways one comes to know more about yourself in the world through pretending by being on a stage? Let me interject here, if you don't mind, because yeah. I want to get into I want to you've you've mentioned the theme that I really wanted to get into. And I think this is the place to put the spoiler warning. So, well, uh, so the horn, speaking, the big red, fl- yeah, red yeah. flashing sign. We put a big horn. So, speaking for myself, I think everyone listening to the podcast should go grab this for spring break or your summer beach reading. But the discussion that follows risks taking some of the pleasure out of it by spoiling some of the surprises. But before you turn away, but before you turn away in the, in the spirit of advocacy for engaging this, this book, however you read books is I had the great experience of, I was reading it on a deadline as well. And so I read it as a physical hard copy and I bounced between listening to the audio book, which for the musical theater fans out there is read by Laura Bernanti. And so it's, it's a, it's a kind of, and so it was a fascinating experience of, reading it on the page and listening it as I was walking around Manhattan, listening to Laura Benanti read it to me while I was walking to the theater. And That's so great. it's, um, I recommend the audiobook. I recommend the print book. You recommend the Kindle edition, all yeah. formats, all formats are, are eligible. So, but now press pause because spoiler alert, like this is the end of our spoiler yeah, yeah. caution phase. We're going to sort of loosen things up perhaps. Yes. Caveat, uh, auditor, um, spoil spoilers, to follow, though limited. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed reading it on Kindle. I wanted to do the audiobook, and then I'm so. Anyway, this is more about me, but there, the way my weekly schedule is composed, I could not find the time. I had to read quickly, and and reading quickly was faster, was better than the audiobook. At any rate, um, so one of the things that you mentioned, Brian, is this sense of theater, what the meaning of theater is, the different ways that Vivian Perry encounters theater. Um, And part of why I wanted to talk about that is that I think that anti-theatricality is one of the more interesting Mm. themes in this. And this reminded me, of course, there's that the sort of noirish detective fiction uh, plot spine to it, which is really well composed, very satisfying, I think. Um, but then it also reminded me of this Iris Murdoch novel called from 1978 called The Sea, The Sea, which I read in college uh, when I took a, a class on the novels of Iris Murdoch. Um, and this is another book where it's an autobiographical t- 
tale, a sort of first-person narrator who is in the theater, though this person is a playwright and director who's very famous in England. Um, And it's very clear from that book that the theatrical profession or vocation of Mm. uh, of the narrator is a signal for their moral... Uh, 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 distortions, right? They're arrogant. They're, they see nothing outside of themselves. They're extremely self-involved and manipulative of other people. You know, things happen, which even when you're reading them, you can tell that it looked very different from everyone else who saw it than to this narrator. And so in that case, Iris Murdoch is using the theater, I think, as a kind of cipher or a symbol in the grand tradition of anti-theatrical philosophy for narcissism, self-involvement, self-delusion, all of this. With this book, I think the theater is its its status is ambivalent. As you mm. mentioned, Brian, the the main character, she has trauma in her background, she has substance abuse issues, um and I think at a certain point says that she basically is suffering from depersonalization. There's a way that she cannot live comfortably in her own life. And one of those escape, one of the escapes for it besides, you know, uh, casual sex and drug and drinking and pills is to actually lose herself in the absorptive experience of seeing a good play. So she, she's not one of these theater critics who you suspect, Oh, this person hates theater in general. The, the plays that she hates, she sort of hates because they're not good enough to get her outside of her own head, her own life. Yeah. On the one hand, that suggests a kind of, you know, uh, one of the positive values or or sort of it's a love of the theater that this theater critic explains to us. But it also aligns it with a kind of psychological malady, right? This person is not well. (laughs) And one of the ways you can tell that she's not well is that she tries to escape her own consciousness by going to the theater. And when it works, it's great for her. And then she pops out. Um, It's funny that you, you, I'll just mention, I won't go into it much detail, but it did make me think of one of my favorite James Baldwin novels, which is Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, which is also his most, uh, which is about his escoriation of the method and the um, Uh ways in which the actor... um, is always fraught in this oscillation space. And it's just, it, it, but it really, it, these are some of the great theater novels, I think, in terms of dealing with this question of the psychology of... Tell me of, tell me the title of that again. I'm writing it down. Uh, tell me how long the train's been gone. And okay. it is, again, a biographical portrait. It's a, it opens with, a, with an actor who's at the height of his theatrical career and has a heart attack on stage. And it sort of becomes this sort of uh, reflection on all the things of why did theater seem like it would be the solution. Yeah, that's great. So it, it I, I wanted to make a list of other sort of novels of the theater. We'll put this on there. But the other thing about it, the other sort of ostensibly anti-theatrical idea here is what you learn about David Adler. And that mm-hmm. is not the man's real name. He is not actually a graduate student, right? And it turns out, and here's the big spoiler. If you've been flirting with this, you have to stop listening and fast forward five minutes. Um but the big spoiler is that the from the first interview in the coffee shop and the discovery of the dead body and the whole mystery that Vivian tries to solve, David Adler turns out to be an avant-garde theater maker who years earlier, or maybe months earlier, had staged a kind of boundary-breaking, imp- you know, aleatory 
um, uh, experimental piece where audience members were interviewed directly by the artists and the attempt to make this kind of spontaneous, intersubjective, you know, quasi Bowalian uh, 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 theater event, she shut down at, rejected, and then wrote a devastating review of it. As revenge, this man has created a new theatrical project, which is basically an elaborate prank or almost kind of like a Nathan Fielder scenario, but highly deceptive that draws her in and attempts to ruin her reputation and embarrass her. So if there's one criticism I had of the book, it was that the, the sort of idea that the villain ends up being this auteur or, you know, experimental theater figure who wants to blur the lines between uh, theater and life. Maybe to my cynical, you know, middle-aged theater professor self, the idea of theater, you know, an, an artistic project that destroys the boundary between art and life seemed a little bit like an old chestnut of an idea. Um, but it's well, well hidden. And I and I, I appreciated the way it was developed and finally sprung quite late. Well, and, and her... Um when she figures it out before he's she's supposed to, yes. her critical, her her sort of the character's deft excoriation of it not being at all original and actually sort of an, yes. um, an amalgam of all these 60s nonsensical things that we've all realized, you know, and it's I do think the idea of of, of this kind of approach to boundary pushing, like sort of yeah. theater that's radical, like there's a kind of way in which um, way in which I think that there is. Uh, that connects to the question and a lot of anti-theatrical novels in particular, but depictions is the question of careerism Mm -hmm. and the ways in which noble aims will sort of say, I'm a critic for all these noble aims, but here she's brazenly careerist at the same time that she deeply cares about her job. And that's, I think, the the figure of David Adler, is brazenly careerist and exploiting the fact that this is going to cause a scandal and it's going to make us as a company, uh, while also touting these high-principled ideals of theater making. And so there's this way in which uh, I think her work is actually sort of asking the, asking sort of pretty sort of prickly questions about how corrupt is this enterprise, you know, and, uh, and this goes into, um, like, there's a good person, there's, there's one or two really good people, there's one or two really survivor people, but um, like people that may not be good, but they're total survivors. And, and so it's um, what I what I but the thing I will say, and this would have been something that uh, not going because I think the like most genre stories, the reveal I think in our contemporary moment, we expect the reveal to be satisfying. Mm -hmm. We expect the reveal to be illuminating in some way. And I think that borrows the way that so much genre really does follow in our Satillian ideal of having this cathartic moment of a revelation and bringing everything together and all of this kind of stuff. I think what she she is really working with is this sort of the ways in which it's always disappointing. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's it's always going to be a measure of disappointment. So there's a way in which she uh, she stages it and then she causes his production to fail. And mm-hmm. she wreaks her own micro revenge by causing it to fail, like fa- causing the launch to fail, the launch of this thing that would destroy her life, destroy her career, which she has already done with his mm-hmm. assistance. But she has already done. Um, there's a way in which uh, it opens up a space of like, if we don't 
try to work within the capitalistic attention economy uh, for building our own careers and our own status, then what are we? What does what does theater leave us with? The thing I will mm-hmm. also say for for folks, I mean, I don't know if I've seen a better definition of ignorances than I do in the page that she dedicates to ignorances in this book. Uh, uh-huh. I do think that there's ways in which the Diderot discussion is really deft and discerning, and uh-huh. a lot of these moments when she talks about the way she because this is character uses her overstudy of theater as a way to understand her daily life as well as the theater she watches. And so there's a kind of way where like, I totally would recommend folks to put this on their comps list, Um, you know, because it's a way to sort of practice your ideas about the theoretical questions that we're often asking of historical forms. Also, I'm really sorry that we were, I was hoping to read it again. And uh, I sort of want somebody like Carla Delegata or somebody else, a Shakespeareanist, to come in and read along with me to see all the ways that Shakespearean heroines mark character names and dramatic events. Oh. And because there's this way in which everything in this piece maps along Shakespeare's women. Like there's a kind of a oh, sub, there's, there's an a Ophelia, su- there's, there's an Ophelia, there's, yeah, there's all these yeah. ways in which Shakespeare's women are here and I'm like not smart enough or didn't pay close enough attention to really tracking that. And so I suspect for astute theater readers, like we've pulled out the yeah. stuff that je- that caught our eye, but I do yeah. think for astute theater readers, or especially if you have a theater oriented book club, you know, this is the kind of book that's going to offer different people, different e- Easter eggs because they're yes. like, I, I have a glancing, I have a glancing familiarity, like we're acquaintances, I think, I don't know that we've ever met in person, but we've corresponded briefly here and there with Alexis Soloski. And I told her I was very excited about this book on Facebook or something. And she said, I'm so glad you'll read it because there's so many things in there that only people like us will get. And I I think when she got some of them, (laughs) and I think what what Soloski is saying with people like us is people who've spent way too much time thinking about theater, and know way too much about theater, which makes us a little bit insufferable when we go to the theater. And yes, so I did. think I think that this is perfect and it's a it's a great way to brush up on some of your like theater theory and it's a great way to sort of have a diverting and I will say that there is um there's a lot going on here in terms of uh the psychic costs of playing pretend for a living. And mm-hmm. and that's how I think it connects with say uh, that's that's how I think it connected for me with the Baldwin novel because it talks about the psychic social and political costs mm-hmm. of playing pretend and when playing pretend is what you do and what you think is going to be make the world better there are certain limitations and liabilities yep. that often are not acknowledged and I think she's that's really right. in that space of 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 impassioned ambivalence about this is what I love and yet it's sort of a problem. I- I get it. I mean, it's interesting, too, because this is a character who actually loves theater in spite of all these signifiers of hating it. But I feel like at this point in my life, I've gotten to the point where I have, you know, when I the things I hate, like it's actually become like what I love most about theater is the stuff I hate about it in a certain way. Well, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, I can unpack that in a, in a later time, but we, we must move on to our last topic. So no one listening now either will have any intention of reading this novel or they've already read it. So um, it's it's pointless to say, go out and read Alexis Solosky's Here in the Dark. It's fantastic. Um, now, for our third topic, we went out and saw at the movie theater 
Uh, unless you found a way to stream it at home. Um, I went to the local theater. We saw yeah. Mean Girls, the new um, film version, which is a musical movie. Um, there, you know, I like most people my age am familiar with the 2004 film uh, written by Tina Fey, starring uh, Lindsay Lohan and um, uh, Rachel McAdams. Um, I had not really seen that movie in a very long time. And part of my experience for watching this was not remembering, not knowing how closely it hewed to the original film. And one of the questions I have, and Brian, I don't know if you can help me with this, but there was the musical version, right? So mm-hmm. there was a there, way back. There was the Rosalind Wiseman book Queen Bees and Wannabes from the 1990s, which is basically a book about um, female bullying in high school and, and cliques and, and that type of thing. So that's the literary basis for Mean Girls, the 2004 movie. Um, there was a 2008 musical based on the movie. Um, and now there's the 2024 version. One of the questions I found fascinating was, to what extent is this the film version of the Broadway musical? I assume the songs are from the musical. Um, there were certain changes compared to the 2004 mm-hmm. film that suggest maybe it it was conceived of as a pretty straightforward adaptation of the musical to the uh, to the screen for instance there's a missing character right katie the main character's father is no longer yeah. a character in this so maybe they trimmed the cast size for the mm-hmm. musical and carried that forward to the movie there's a scene between um uh, the tina fey character whose name's escape me escapes me but she's a teacher at the high school and katie which is missing so they trimmed up that right there's one one set one location that was in the 2004 film that's not in this one mm-hmm. and a bunch of other stylistic and particularly casting changes which i want to get into with you uh, uh brian um but it's interesting in part, I think, because it is this already rather complicated story of uh, yeah. revival and adaptation. Well, and that's that's exactly that's my wheelhouse in some ways. That's my that's my favorite thing to think about is revival and adaptation. One br- brief point of correction: the uh, oh, the stage me. musical uh, wasn't two thousand eight. It was more like twenty eighteen. It was oh no, two thousand eighteen. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So so there was about a fifteen year span between the film and its. Uh, like so, there are about five years between the the self help book and then the Tina Fey's original screenplay and movie, um, and then uh, following up about fifteen years later, there was a stage musical which was written also by Tina Fey, uh, with a lot of lyric contributions by Tina Fey, and then um, and then this movie that comes, uh, you know, a few years later. Um, so I think the crucial thing to understand is that it is not. It is like a lot of the, not much like Color Purple, the recent film version of Color Purple, it is not a direct adaptation of the stage musical. It is more of a hybrid adaptation of the prior source material. So there's, uh, so there's certain, like one of the most iconic songs, or not iconic, but I guess one of the songs, like the song that they sang on the Tonys. Um, in, uh, when Mean Girls was up for the Tonys, uh, it does not appear in this oh, musical. Wow. So it was one of the biggest sort of the song that they performed a lot of in promotion, promoting the uh, Broadway musical and, and especially as it went on tour. And that's a song that basically narrates the social ecosystem of the, of the lunchroom. And so mm-hmm. that 
I, that section of mapping the social ecosystem of the lunchroom does occur as a dramaturgical beat, but it's not necessarily the it's, it's like they so they didn't bring in all the songs. They added a song, I think. Um, they okay. also have they also have uh, updated it uh, from. Uh, into a fully social media era. So there's been certain ways more so than even the stage version. Like there's this uh, spoiler alert for people who don't know Mean Girls. There's this crucial plot device with a burn book, which is a physical book in which pictures and and slanderous comments are put in and that gets revealed. And it's sort of who is the source of the burn book becomes a point of big social eruption in this high school. Um, in the original film and in the stage version, that is just like photocopies. You know, it's the book and and here they activate a TikTok sensibility where they sort of it's going viral. So this question of social notoriety, bullying, like who gets away with what is really integrated with this face fronting camera engagement. And that is, I think, the biggest shift uh, in this iteration, which is this 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 one pivots um, to uh, being. um why am I blanking the character's name? Uh, but uh, Regina George. No, not Katie. Regina. Uh, but uh, Janice and the two gay to function. E- is it Ian? No, it's not Ian. Yeah. yeah so, but Janice and two gay to function. Um, I'm just blanking on the character's name. Who's played by Jaquel, Spy- uh, Jaquel Spivey, who is on Broadway and Tony nominated for original for performing the role of Usher in A Strange Loop on Broadway. In this iteration, those two characters, sort of the queer outsider characters. Damien and Janice are the uh, two that sort of introduce the story and they tell the story as sort of a cautionary tale and they do it in a face fronting camera as though they're sort of doing it on TikTok or on their YouTube channel. So there is a way in which they've sort of pivoted the center of the story away from Katie and away from Regina into a kind of a social ecosystem in a slightly different way. So if, if, um, you know, and so I think what, what is what brought it to our attention, I think the questions of adaptation will absorb our musical theater scholar friends in different ways for different reasons. And I think rightly so, because this is a kind of, um, and this leads us to the reason I think we thought about talking about this for the podcast in the first place is there's a way in which the, the musical does the musical movie version, the 2024 version of the movie doesn't, um, it's an interesting strategy it takes with regard to being a musical in that it doesn't make the musical numbers showstoppers. It folds mm-hmm. them in in terms of different idioms of self-expression. And so it's not like we have these big production numbers and everything stops and we have to wait for applause, which is always an awkward thing on film. But uh, it's there's a way in which it just it folds in. It folds mm-hmm. in in incredibly different ways. And that has that has also opened up interesting questions where there's been certain discourses about why did they not cast better singers in certain roles or why is or why did they conceal the fact that it was a musical at all in most of its promotion in the marketing yeah and so yeah, a lot so, of the discourse has been about that like yeah. why you know previews where there's not a hint that this is a musical version and then you probably brian have seen some of the videos on social media where, you know, in the theater itself, the first moment a character starts singing, the audience sort of erupts in groans because many of the audience members didn't know there would be singing. So why did they mask that? It's a very interesting question. Well, and there is a kind of a whole line of discourse within the entertainment industry about musicals don't make money. And some of the more recent examples of In the Heights or West Side Story or whatever, that they didn't make money. And there's this concern. But and, and Mean Girls is not the only 
recent high profile, arguably franchise or IP production that has had a new iteration in the holiday season uh, that concealed in some ways the fact that it had musical features mm-hmm. of it. Wonka, for example, got a lot right. of was like really tried to hide that it was even though the source material had musical numbers in it and there's Oompa Loompas and what do Oompa Loompas do but sing and then uh, Color Purple too and so there's this kind of way in which um, these adaptations of familiar source material have been anxious about acknowledging the the ways that characters will pop up in singing and I think that it does reflect what I have come to call a kind of a uh, sort of a, we talked a little bit about anti-theatrical prejudice in relation to as a dynamic course within uh, Here in the Dark. And I do think there's a kind of an anti, a particular iteration of anti-theatrical prejudice that accrues to musicals, especially musicals sure. that are not about uh, spectacular production numbers, about just sort of great music video kind of stylization of dance sequences or whatever, but more about diegetic singing of characters singing their interior. Uh, there's an anxiety, I think, about that forthright declaration declaration of interiority that Mm -hmm. often musicals sort of activate that the character is not just saying because characters don't do soliloquies in very many movies unless it's part of a meta concept but the Uh musical here they are singing you singing to you their feelings or singing somebody else's feelings to them and uh, singing about their feelings with somebody else and so so i think there's a kind of cringy aspect that is that is uh that accrues to, and it gets called theater kid energy or these different kinds of things, but there is a kind of uh, way in which of delimiting musicals as not being of interest or of relevance because they're, yes. they're, there's a genre suspicion. And that is something I think has really um, been, uh, I don't know, just sort of evinced in the yeah. way that the media and uh, popular response has accrued around these films. I think I think it's a very... I like this read and this question, Brian, because indeed reading some of the press coverage about this phenomenon, it has been about, okay, what's going on in the, you know, in the studios or the marketing office is the wager that they think people will actually like this once they go and they won't mind that it's a musical once they go, but they Mm -hmm. won't go if they think they're going to see a musical. So why is that? And there doesn't need to be any more complicated reason to that than you know, West Side Story didn't do so well, and they think it would have done well otherwise. But I think you're right that the much more interesting question is about the form. Yeah. Right? People go to the movies. I have a friend who's a colleague here who just tells me flatly, uh, you know, I just, theater is just not my thing. I just can't go to a play and not, and he's a on the film faculty here. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, you might find something you like if you went. Um, <laughs> but is it that the the kind of, social energy within a theater building where there are actual people on stage and you never know, they might come into the aisles or they might just acknowledge your presence. The staginess of the musical, you know, you you can have theater that is well within a fourth wall and there's never any acknowledgement of the audience, but that does not work in when someone starts singing. And so for someone to start singing, on the screen in a movie theater, it is like they're singing to you, right? There's, is that the, is that kind of the aesthetic? Well, I I think, yeah, there's a kind of way in which there's I think there's an anxiety about, I also, I think it's an anxiety about a stylized 
presentation of interiority, but that's subject for a different essay you mean or like talk. like it's homophobic? It's oh, no, <laughs> no, it just so sort of like we don't want to know, like don't, yes. like we, yeah. we, we want to see you behave, we don't want to see you tell us how you feel. And yes. so it would be the sort of thing of like, don't look out at me and start to be not to be, like just be in your world, don't pretend like yes. it's a different reality. Which is why I think the, the filmmakers of Mean Girl are so brilliant in their use of TikTok and other face-fronting video social media modes, because that's a space that's utterly normalized uh, for people just being full out and saying, this is what I'm yes. doing, what I'm feeling. And so one of the musical numbers that works the most effectively is uh, Karen's number, Sexy, where she talks mm -hmm. about Halloween costumes. And it's basically everybody looking at the cameras. And there's and there's many split screen moments, which is a, a signal feature of the Hollywood musical, a split screen. But we see them with these different cameras. We see, simultan we see a moment going viral with all these yes. different people filming themselves or dressing themselves up or doing these different things. And so this crucial dramaturgical beat when Katie shows up in costume to a holiday a Halloween party um, but does it wrong uh, mm -hmm. is actually introduced by the the song that the uh, uh, ostensibly a sort of dingbat um, version of the plastics as she's leading the song about everybody we're just doing sexy things we're being sexy mm -hmm. this or sexy that and the number works it's one of the numbers that I think works the most effectively on screen because it really does lean into instead of a bunch of jazz hands people facing front it's these people who are doing hyper stylized versions of self-disclosure which mm -hmm. is I think um which in some ways is what a lot of musical numbers are in a post-Sontime mm -hmm. world, is this sort of moment of like, I'm telling you my interiority, I'm singing my face off because I have feelings. And mm -hmm. this is uh, this is something that gets a little bit awkward. I mean, I've often struggled as everybody post, everybody Gen X on up has been raised with music videos. Uh, this, mm -hmm. the, you know, so I always, I always get a little bit perplexed of like, so a car chase is basically a music video. And so mm -hmm. what is in a music video is a, your singer lip syncing to songs. Mm -hmm. So what is it about musical numbers that cause you to freak the F out? And mm -hmm. it's basically the, the feelings. <laughs> I think it's the fact that it is actually asking, asking the audience to engage with a different kind of character relationship than cinema typically yeah. engages, unless it's very... Um, very pointed there's very little direct address and so even though direct address is not like people coming out and messing with you in the audience direct address yes. does implicate yes. you as a different kind of spectator it and calls for a kind of sympathy that doesn't necessarily come yeah. easy and um i have to well we're running out of time i have to bring this up because i need to hear you talk about it um which is one of the i think the features of it that people notice as being different which is casting yeah um then uh, Jessica Bennett, who wrote an op-ed about this for the New York Times, um, which as a parenthesis, we don't need to get into it. But she says one of the one of the drawbacks of the new version is that it does not adequately explore the way that the online social life is now the default medium or one of the major mediums mm. of, of the type of bullying that the 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 the. the uh, movies ostensibly about but she also says um you know the, the casting is somewhat different one thing that's true is that i think body types are different so yeah. this is and this is true i'd say throughout the cast but particularly with the plastics the 2004 version they're you know they wear pink and there's a sort of body type there's a wayfish and sort of barbie body 
that's, you know, sort of styled or, or cast there. And that's not there anymore. People have different body types. Uh, Regina George, uh, played by Renee Rapp, is not in the sort of, you know, waifish or barbie-ish mold. Um, but uh, Jessica Bennett also mentions that there's a sort of racial casting difference where yeah. the cliques, the cliques are no longer sort of race uh, specific implicitly that it's, you know, sort of diverse within clicks. So I was just curious what you were thinking about in terms of the casting choices that were made in this version. Well, I mean, I, th- I don't think there's anything pretty, especially sophisticated going on with casting. I just think it's definitely uh, addressing a uh, Gen Z or younger audience who does not recognize in their media or their world a racially homogenous uh, space like the original movie has. Because there are some racial outliers in the original film, but it's pretty mm-hmm. much an all-white space, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, like, the cliques are more racially demarcated. The mathletes are led by an uh South Asian guy, you know, it's like it's very much marked of insider outsider and whiteness is a feature of being an insider. And Mm -hmm. so uh, in the original film, uh, but I think in this one, I think that there is a kind of I hate to say it, but it's my old person saying it. It's like, like um, we've got two, gen- two or three generations of folks who had their first major media encounter with the fairly diverse casting of Disney Channel and Nick Nickelodeon. So mm-hmm. kid comms have long been much more just casually diverse. Yeah. Um, with the with uh, the fact that this person is Asian and also. Uh, a princess, like a sort of a, a social diva at school, like the Asian is not really inflecting what that meant. And so I think there is a kind of a visual repertoire of, of just sort of narrative storytelling that kid comms have long been much more, much more forth forward thinking in terms of perhaps cynically for demographics, but also just not as concerned with every casting having to have sociological significance. I do think the fact that there are larger bodies in this, like Ryan Donovan's recent book, Broadway Bodies, talks a lot about the way the Broadway body has sort of rehearsed a kind of normativity of what a deftly performing body is supposed to look like. And this this um, production really does push push the fib uh, push the fib mm-hmm. the lie the fantasy of of having a Broadway body being necessary because we see uh, Renee Rapp and Chakel Spivey and the as just sort of the some of the most compelling presences on screen and mm-hmm. also like utterly deft with everything they're asked to do physically and vocally and acting wise. And so it just sort of reveals the lie of that. But um, I don't think it's especially, I think it's necessary to engage what seems to be the target audience for this one, because the first marketing hook for this was, this is not your mom's mean girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's really targeting a different generation. And I do think that the story was going back to its source material is a pre-social media story. What yep. they did integrate social media in was not so much in content, but more in stylized devices in how they how they use it as a way to sort of amplify it. But there's also crucially um it's engaged with the tradition of Mean Girls. Like there's, um, I'm not going to, there's a great moment at the very end of the novel where a surprise cameo comes in and offers a lot of fan service. There's the recurring, there's a recurring presence of, 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 um, of Tim Meadows as the principal, which is also sort of call outs. There's, there's these moments of cameos and presences that are also, I think a crucial part of any musical or any popular entertainment right now, which is fan service. And yep, so I think yep. a big part of fan service for a contemporary musical like this is to say, we're not going to do it all white and we're not yeah. going to do it with all with all sort of uh, 
standard, like the old school version of what t- people took for granted in the aughts in terms of uh, low rise jeans and midriff bearing tops and them having to look a certain way. They don't yeah. diminish the weight gain threat of the threat of yes, weight gain. There's a but, plot. There's a yeah, sort of there's, surreptitious. That, Diet that's sabotage. A, yeah, and that's a that's a key dramatic feature of both iterations of the film. They don't diminish that, so well, weight stigma me, is not erased, but it's not no, necessarily it, as a tragedy as it was in the first film. It shouldn't be, but and this is it, you know the Jessica Bennett op-ed is sort of it is about this in a way, which is that there's a. I think the movie is successful. I really enjoyed it. I, I like I said, I hadn't seen the original in a long time. I thought this one was hilarious, um, but it did feel like it had a little bit of the edges sanded down Mm -hmm. and that is an interesting i think that's a sign of the times i think that's uh, like you said i think it's probably um acknowledging the target audience and what they're going to want to see and what they're not um but in a movie that's about people's viciousness and judgmental behavior and this sort of uniquely terrible moment in in many people's adolescence um to then have those you know the 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 weight gain sabotage plot is one of those moments where the tension sort of comes out, mm-hmm. um, right? Because then what would be so terrible about you know gaining a bunch of weight? Um, so so you can sort of see the generational shift manifest in that way. Um, well, and like with all revivals, we're reviving. We're like I I often say like with West Side Story. Anytime you stage West Side Story, you're also staging 1957. You know, yes. so there's this way in which we are accruing different questions and so timely topical youth oriented content uh is always ripe for revival because there's a nostalgic appeal and there's this idea of you can target the parents and the kids but uh, yeah. there's always limits there's always limits. yeah yeah but i i would i'd give this a i'd give this the uh, on tap thumbs up um good for gen xers i i'm curious to know what the younger audiences think i may ask my my students in class what they think um we should move on to our drafts um on tap listeners know what drafts are it's our individual you know thoughts in progress our scholarly projects our musings things we've read or seen that left an impression um brian do you have a draft served up um just very quickly um people who hear me draft you know i always invoke reality television um and i think in keeping with uh here in the dark my favorite is uh the current season of The Traitors, which is, airs on Peacock, which uh, mm-hmm. is just such a fascinating, it's a really good game structure, but it also in this particular season, it's opening up, uh, I find, very interesting questions about what are the performance skills required of the different subgenres of reality television. Uh, is, this the, uh, is this the show with Alan Cummings? With Alan Cummings, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, so yeah, and so there's, it's, it's, for me and for reality TV fans, I think it's a must watch, and also especially because this is brought uh, this opens up really interesting questions about what is the skill set of the bachelor versus the skill set of a real housewife versus the skill set of someone on survivor and how do they play out in this alternate version of a game so That's fantastic um, my draft is is drawn from not reality TV but my own reality which is that uh, my daughter uh, June, who's 10 years old, is uh, currently cast as Mamelius in my department's production of The Winter's Tale. Um, and so this is, you know, I have become the stage dad. I, I take June to rehearsals. I, I sit and I try not to watch what's going on because I want her to have, you know, a, a, an autonomous experience and work with the director. Um, but she still wants 
to have me in the room, which is very sweet. Um, so I don't know. I don't have sort of critical insights to develop out of it. It's just um, a moment where my uh, personal and professional life are, are sort of blending in a, in a lovely way. Um, productions being directed by my colleague, Bill Whitaker, who's just uh, a, a wonderful guy to work with and someone I'm so happy is, is uh, June's first um, director. But um, that's a, that's a delight. I, I finish up my work, I go home and then about half the nights per week, June and I go back to campus and I get to surreptitiously listen and watch her um, in her first real theater role. So wow. um, June, if you, if you listen to this someday um, it's been a, a joy watching you work this way. And that'll do it. Um, uh, Brian, thanks again. It's always a joy to talk with you. Um, listeners, we will have more episodes coming up and heading your way. So keep downloading, keep streaming, and um, you'll hear us again soon. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can also find us on Blue Sky Social at ontappodcast. Podcast.